You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Thanks for tuning in and welcome. I'm Aaron Fishman here to bring you a special book-themed episode with Jake Fisher, NBA writer for Bleacher Report. Just ahead, Jake and I will discuss his debut book, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Naturally, the Philadelphia native began his exploration with the franchise that put tanking on the map like never before, the Trust the Process 76ers, then led by polarizing general manager Sam Hinkie. In the narrative, Jake also closely studies the team-building processes of the Orlando Magic, Sacramento Kings, LA Lakers, and Phoenix Suns. The book, which was released on May 4th of this year, takes readers on an exhilarating ride by virtue of vivid storytelling bolstered by hundreds of interviews conducted over a two-year period. In my candid one-on-one conversation with Jake, the first-time author shares a fun and informative look behind the scenes of the making of the book. Here we go. Jake, it's an honor to have you on to discuss your excellent debut book. Thanks for doing this. (laughs) The honor is all mine. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Thank you. So let's get into this. If you had to pinpoint one or two things you learned about NBA tanking that most surprised you, what do you think stands out the most? Um, I think I set out, you know, to do this book, kind of to find out what happened behind the scenes, right? And I think the biggest lesson I learned was that there's so many different people involved in an organization's success and from ownership level to the front office level to um, you know, even the tiers within the front office and the coaching staff and the players and the players have their agents and their families and their support staff. There's just a lot of conflicting agendas at play and a lot of unforeseen variables like players getting hurt and players not getting along, players not liking your coach that ultimately stand in the way of something that's considered to be pretty simple, right? When you think of tanking on its face, you think of something that you know, a team does for a year, two years, and they're back in the playoffs and it's all good, but it doesn't usually go like that. Yeah. And I think you did a really good job of going through all the different stakeholders and a lot of the lesser known ones that the casual fan might not even think of when considering the whole process. You also focused on five teams primarily throughout the narrative, the Celtics, Lakers, Magic, Suns, and Kings. Beginning in the summer of 18, Sam Hinkie declined to speak to you on record for the book, and none of the other four GMs agreed to speak on record either. Undeterred, you put your head down and just reported the hell out of the story. It seemed like you spoke to more than 300 people around the NBA. What was your first priority in the process once those GMs declined? So I think there's you know a lot of people involved in every decision on any given basketball situation. Right. So um, to me, like when I'm writing any story, I immediately start to just write down like a jotted list of any person 
that I know is somewhat loosely involved in that story. And, you know, you're never going to find out exactly what happened, especially because everyone's memories are faulty by nature, right? Like as human beings, we have very poor memories overall. And the only way to really find out slivers of the truth is talk to, you know, four people were in a room. You try to talk to as many of them as you can and where their stories overlap. And, you know, based off of the conversations you've had and the questions you've asked, like you're kind of able to make a judgment call and a read on what was true and what wasn't, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think for me, um, there was a, a long Google doc of probably 600 names of people that were, you know, this player and his agent, the player's college coach, and every single guy who was ever rostered by that team, guys who were in training camp. Um, and then as you get on the phone with other people, you start to ask also like, hey, you know, now that we've talked for 20, 30, 40 minutes and you kind of know who I am a little bit, know the work I'm trying to do and the, just the honest conversation I'm trying to have, anybody you think you could put me in touch with that would help me, you know, further understand, add another perspective. Sometimes I'll even ask for specific people, say, hey, do you have so-and-so's number? Um, and a lot of people are, are pretty helpful in that regard. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's just a lot of the times it's about asking people who typically don't even get asked a question. And those are the ones who are really ready to talk. Yeah. I've run into the same thing about faulty memory, especially when you're going back a handful of years. And then a little bit more cynically, there's also ulterior motives that you have to kind of balance out too. Sometimes people want to um, portray themselves in the in the best light. So I, I would assume that's also why it's beneficial to seek out as many sources as you can. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I write a reported column for Bleach Report once a week now covering, you know, some pretty significant storylines throughout the league. And the stakes are pretty high there, right? There, there was, and I'm writing something, I don't want to say too much, um, coming out tomorrow on Tuesday, depending, I don't know when this is going to go live. This but, won't be out by then. <laughs> all right, so I'll just say it now. I'm writing something <laughs> on Donovan Mitchell and the uh-huh. Utah Jazz. And um, you know, there was someone I talked to, for example, today, one of the last calls I made just to kind of round out all the edges. and. He was like, well, I thought this was a positive story. I said, it's not a negative story. It's just, it's just a, it's just a story that's, I mean, it's not positive or negative. It just is what it is. And, um, you know, I I think that's important. That's important to convey to people when you're talking to them. Like, yeah, sure. Like a lot of the time you want to have a buddy, buddy, happy, go lucky conversation, reminiscing and going down memory lane with people. But when a topic, you know, does require, Um, like you gotta, you gotta find, you gotta recognize that sometimes people are going to want to lie to you or want to spin facts your way. Right. So you just gotta be aware of that. And also the other thing that I was thinking about too, related to my question was proximity. Like for instance, you got the Celtics GM, uh, excuse me, assistant GM, Mike Zarin. So, Mm -hmm. um, that's pretty close. If you, if you're not at, at the GM level, that's, that's like the next best thing, for example, or the Lakers uh, I forgot what Clay Moser's title was, but he was, he definitely knew a lot yeah. about the thinking of the organization and, and around there too. So is that another thing that you're keeping in mind as you're making that long uh, Google doc list, what kind of access do people have and knowledge of, of the situation? Yeah. Well, I also, 
you know, there's like a, like a trope in journalism to write an inverted pyramid, right. To put up the most yeah. important stuff up at the top. Right. So mm-hmm. I think with reporting a lot of the times I, I flip that inverted pyramid back into a, um, into a pyramid and I try to build up to the top. Like if you, I mean, I do this every week with calls around the league. Like there are lower level people or people who I know I can call depending on our relationship, even if I don't have anything new to give them we can just kind of talk and whatever and um, right. kind of riff. But there are people that I know I got to bring something to them in order to get their attention and for them to give me something back. I, I try to go up an organizational chart, for example, on to, to do something like to dive deep into, into a team or a situation where, you know, I'll talk to lower level scouts and player development coaches and video room guys first so that by the time you get to someone like a Mike Zarin, like you've got your facts, you're armed with a lot of bullets, not in terms of like it's a battle or a fight. Cause that's the last way I feel like, like I also like, I, even if I'm asking someone tough questions, like I never do it in an antagonistic way. Right. But you want to be armed yeah. with like material that you can say, look, man, or lady, like, I'm writing this story. I'm just covering what I think happened and all sides of it. And I'd just like to include your perspective. And that's typically been my approach. Like when I've written about the Ben Simmons situation or there's been other multiple times, particularly with people, um, high powered NBA figures, let's say, who I've never spoken to before, but I left them repeated voicemails saying, this is Jake Fisher. I'm working on this story. It's coming out and, um, you know, I'm just trying to tell this as completely as I can. And the only way to do that is to include you. Now I have a lot. I'm like, I'm going to run what I have, but I don't want to without talking to you first and would really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And I've had multiple people this year telling me that they only got back to me because of the voicemail, my persistence and for my commitment to wanting to just include all sides. So um, yeah. I'm not saying that's that's the way to do it, but that my, my approach definitely seems to at least get some people interested in talking that wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, and it's not manipulative at all because you do have the information and they would be at a loss if their perspective wasn't included in the story. So you're giving them that opportunity. And as you said, more more times than not, they would prefer to have their perspective included in the story as opposed to just completely left out where things can be interpreted any which way or um, the reader can just uh, assume things that aren't true. Yeah. I mean, I'm never going to write something that I wouldn't about someone that I wouldn't tell them to their face. Yeah. Um, It's like the golden rule. You have to be willing to show up at practice or whatever the day after writing the column. Right. For sure. And I think I also, I send every link Books were more difficult, obviously, um, but I send every link yeah. to every story that I write to the people that I talk to for that story. And I think, you know, I don't know for sure, because again, committed to objectivity and honesty here. Um, I don't know for sure because I'm not other people, but I, I can tell from the way people respond to me sending them links that like a lot of writers and reporters don't do that. They just talk to them and move on and kind of hide from their and that and kind of hide from like what they had said, what they had written, you know, versus the opposite approach of, you know, there is even something recently I, I wrote um, 
I'm not going to say which story, but for Bleach Report, and I sent it to somebody, and he texted me and said, "Hey, man, like, I didn't think you were going to be quoting me in that. Like, it was an anonymous quote, um, but he thought it could obviously be traced back to him." And you know, I told him it was on background, and he thought I meant off the record, and like, he didn't like. That's a big disconnect and issue, I think, in yeah. the industry where a lot of people don't understand journalistic uh, um, terminology. And like, we obviously live in this era that's so entrenched in anonymous sourcing, which is unfortunate. And that's something I'm really proud of in the book that like most of those quotes and most of the information comes from something or someone that has a name attached to it. Right. Um, but in like current day stuff, it just is what it is. Um, but that guy, even after that guy, you know, had a little couple words for me, like we took, we texted about it back and forth and he was like, we're good, man. Like, I appreciate you listening to me and hearing me here and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, that's I think, good. yeah, I think that like transparency and candor is, is important. This question might seem a little insidery. We're talking though, journalism. And I think also non-journalists would be interested to learn some of the behind the scenes logistics for these interviews. So my understanding is the bulk of the interviews came from the Barclays Center locker room conversations during that 2019-20 season. One of the things I think um, people would be curious to learn, and I was wondering, is were you talking with these players and coaches on game days before or after the games? And if so, is it difficult to get them to delve into things that happened four or five years ago when they may be more focused on uh, the task at hand, the game that is about to happen or that just did? Yeah, it, it's a good question. You know, I'll say like a good amount of the info from the players and from, I, I'd say head coach names came from pregame media availability, postgame media availability. Yeah. I got a lot of people on the phone too. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, there's a bunch of guys in there. Like the main character is like, Thad Young and Evan Turner and um, maybe Spencer Hawes. I don't know if you'd yeah Spencer Spencer Hawes. Um, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank because the book came out a long time ago. And I'm like literally finishing up my proposal for the next one. But I got a <laughs> I got a lot of people like on the phone or um in person for for longer. Um, but yeah, I think for me. You know, before I got into this more newsy uh, space at Bleach Report, you know, at Sports Illustrated, which is I was working on Built to Lose for a long portion of my time there. You know, I kind of developed a niche at SI of being someone who covered like left of center stories, right? Like I got coffee with Mike D'Antoni because he's obsessed with Starbucks. And I did my last thing I ever wrote for, for SI was a profile on Red Panda. Um, so stuff like that. And, you know, I, I realized from, I don't really cover basketball that much, right? I kind of cover the people who work in basketball and things about the business of basketball and the ecosystem of the NBA. So it's, it's always been difficult, I think at times to throw like a random question to somebody, but there's a way to do it in a way that is interesting to them versus like, here's this total left field subject. Like, I feel like if you go at it kind of with humility and like laughing at yourself, like, listen, man, I know this is totally off topic, but I'm working on a book about this or a story about this. And just got a couple of questions, but really love to pick your brain. 
And a lot of people are like, and sometimes if you even say like, I got a weird question for you, they'll, they'll appreciate it. Cause a, a lot of these guys get like super insensitive questions, ask them all the time. And B, a lot of them get asked stupid questions. Like, let's just be honest. Like a lot of times a player doesn't want to ask, doesn't want to answer. What'd you see out there? What went well for you guys tonight? Or talk you know, about. <laughs> da, da, da. Yeah. So like, if you come in, if you come up to somebody and say, Hey man, you know, I know you played 10 games with the 76ers from 15, 16, and it probably doesn't have that big of a mark on your brain. But if you have a few minutes, I want to ask you about this topic that I know, you know, no one would knows, but me, like when um, Elton Brand made a banner and hang and hung it up <laughs> in the Sixers practice facility to pre-celebrate quote unquote, actually mock and make fun of the Sixers for being the worst team in NBA history to like mm-hmm. inspire them to win games. You know, if I, if you know things about that kind of like working up the pyramid to show to a top executive um, that you've done your homework, if you can show these people that you're that you've researched a hobby of theirs or an interest or a unique time period of their life, and you've got like a, a conversation you want to have with them versus questions you want to throw in their face, they seem yeah. to be um, at least amenable most of the time. Yeah, and that makes sense because um, not just players and coaches, but also just all of us in our everyday roles can be kind of robotic and we're just used to a certain routine and we don't necessarily like to stray away from it. But I would think because they know you and your body of work, that they would be more than willing to set aside time for you on something that they may not usually talk about. And then they probably will end up having fun because it's not something they're often asked about. Just a quick one. Did you draw upon any reporting from previous features you wrote or was basically everything in the book from the reporting you did over the last couple of years? Yeah, there was a little here and there that I pulled from some SI stuff. Um, But yeah, I'd say the overall majority of it was Mm -hmm. from original stuff for the book. And I I talked to over 300 people around the NBA and I, I really do believe that every page has some type of new information that didn't come out before, whether it was furthering a story that had come out previously um, or just bringing a new story altogether. You know, that that's a, that's a big goal of mine. Anytime I write, you know, I, I had a, a really great journalism advisor in high school named Greg Gagliardi, um, who I shout out all the time. Who's one of the people that books um, dedicated to. And yeah. he, he, ta- he taught me back in, you know, my junior year of high school, maybe even, maybe, maybe even my freshman year, if you don't have something new, then you don't have a story. And that's been, I mean, that's why I've been like such a reporter, you know, through and through, like, I, I don't really, I'm not really an NBA analyst. I don't make predictions on who's going to win um, end of season. Not, 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 not looking down upon that stuff. That's just not what I do. I, yeah, I, that's I find not your so much. Role. And that's not your strength. I think, I mean, you're really good at finding a, a unique niche or feature and reporting on it, I think. And Thank you, illustrating man. the story. You're welcome. Yeah. What you were saying about, you know, us being robotic and going about our days. Like, I just like people and I like asking questions. I mean, this delivery guy came uh, to my apartment earlier today and clearly looked to be of Southeast Asian descent and was missing an arm. And like, I handed him cash and he's flipping through it with, his elbow basically and like how do i not take a moment to ask him where he's from you know what brought him to my doorstep right now you know so i try to take that same approach to nba players 
is he the focus of your next story that you yeah. your next book that you alluded to no but he you know <laughs> he could be a he could be a character that appears one day in something Who, who's to say just a quick question um before we move on is it a bill to lose sequel if you will the proposal you're talking about or is it unrelated um definitely unrelated but it is hopefully will be my second nba book yeah okay sounds good and it's funny i had this on my outline and and you perfectly set me up for it so the book is dedicated to two of your teachers nicole crawford and greg gagliardi Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit more about nicole crawford yeah she was uh my, my third and fourth grade teacher we did this thing called looping for whatever reason um i tried to ask my parents like specifically what it was but basically this our class for whatever reason got all moved from third grade to fourth grade together with her and she was just an amazing writing teacher she taught me how to write vividly with imagery and to kind of like fall in love with looking at sentences and paragraphs and the overall structure of a story as like a big ball of clay that you can rip apart and move around and reshape and make it really skinny or make it really fat like that's something I developed a passion for at a really young age because of her. And like, I truthfully don't think I'd be having this conversation with you today without her kind of instilling that um, excitement about writing in me. So um, it felt, you know, only right to, to put her and to put gags yeah. in that book. Cause that, yeah, they, they set me down this path for sure. That's amazing. I have so many important teachers throughout my life that have made a profound impact. Um, And teachers never get the respect they deserve. So I really appreciate that you did that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. The Association's back. And at DraftKings Sportsbook, an authorized sports betting partner of the NBA, the key to victory is a strong starting spot. New customers, this message is for you. You can bet just $5 on any NBA team to win its game, and if it does, you'll win $200 in free bets. So why not make your roster Reggie Jackson, Jaron Jackson Jr., P.J. Washington, and the Pistons guards, Frank Jackson and Josh Jackson. For those who missed it, those are all references to money. DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also get skin in the game with new same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Bet just $5 on any NBA team to win its game and win $200 in free bets. If it wins, you win with promo code TBPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook an authorized sports betting partner of the NBA. SB 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, this is Sarah Todd, jazz reporter for the Deseret News, and I'm on the NBA Beat. I want to talk about the surprisingly blunt quotes and revelations that (laughs) we got from your book. Just to name three quick examples, Spencer Hawes confirmed he wasn't exactly trying against Cleveland the last game before the 76ers mercifully traded him ahead of that (laughs) 2014 deadline. 
there was the Marquise Morris one about LA nightlife. <laughs> he basically admitted that their two losses to the LA teams were because of going out um, as a team. And then when um, D'Angelo Russell called his former coach Byron Scott an idiot, and a couple of those guys I just named are still active players too. What does yeah. it mean to you as a reporter to be able to extract such gold from your interview <laughs> subjects? And how, if at all, do you go about making them more comfortable to share so openly? Um, I mean, Hawes is a different case entirely. Um, I mean, him and Evan Turner and Thad Young, like, I'm very lucky that um, I grew up with my dad at season tickets to Sixers games. And we sat literally a row behind the family sections. And like, I went to 30 plus games a year. I don't, I'm not a Sixers fan anymore as maybe we've talked about on our show. Um, but like those teams I followed so closely and like knew top to bottom that I was already kind of like quote unquote part of the team not really, but I knew everything that had happened with those Sixers. So talking to those guys felt like just catching up with a friend. And that's what I, that's what the goal for something like this, something reflective, that's the best. And just like I said earlier, like to have a conversation is way better than to have an interview. So I wanted to make all of these teams and people think I was just kind of catching up with them about something we were all a part of. And like I was basically in the room with them. I think that's how I got. Marquise to open up a little bit too. I mean, I always try to play on uh, commonalities. Like, I mean, the Morrises are from Philly. I'm from Philly. And then like, you know, once you start talking about scenes and details and, and, and things, you know, from that team that like you only could really know from people who were in the room, you, you could even start to like remind people of stories that they forgot to go back to how bad our memories are. Right. And then when yeah. you, when you remind someone of something that happened to them, then they're like, Holy cow. Like, like I know this guy, even though like don't, you know? And, yeah, and, that, and again, this all does kind of sound manipulative to use your word earlier, but I think it's just relating to people. And I, cause I am enjoying those conversations too. And I am getting as much, um, I'm putting as much genuine, just like interest in them. Um, as I'm trying to, you know, I think the quote is interesting because I'm really interested in what, I'm really interested to hear what they're saying. Yeah. And I have to ask you about the Sacramento Kings because I had a front row seat to that dysfunction for a couple of months in early 2014, covering the Kings for the Cowbell Kingdom at practices and games. And then I also edited James Ham's Sunday column for years before and after that. So we know, uh, I already knew. And then from the <laughs> book, even more just all the craziness from the front office and owner to former centerpiece to Marcus Cousins is bullying and overall petulance. They've made strides, I would say, with drafting promising players like De'Aaron Fox, Tyrese Halliburton, but then also we've seen continual drama between the franchise and its second overall pick from 2018, Marvin Bagley III. Yeah. That situation's only getting worse. To what extent have you detected any noticeable improvement with how that organization is run? And you can be completely honest. Yeah. Um, I think the Bagley dynamic is kind of a holdover from that previous regime, right? Where mm -hmm. um, I think as an objective observer, I don't want to speak for Marvin Bagley, but I, I think the gripes that he and his representation have with Sacramento date back to the Vlade days, right? But I don't know, by, by all accounts, you know, the people I've talked to in Sacramento, people I talked to around the league, 
it seems to be like they are turning a tide here. And, you know, the winning factor will obviously be the deciding factor for every franchise. And they're a fun young team right now. But, um, you know, I think on the whole, people are curious where they're going to be. I mean, the, the Davion Mitchell pick obviously took a lot of people by surprise. Um, it seems to be a stroke of genius so far. Same with Halliburton, obviously, um, you know, he fell pretty low and he just kind of, and they, the Kings had no expectation Tyrese Halliburton was going to be there. Um, it wasn't like Mitchell where he could have gone seven to Golden State or, you know, whatever. Um, but even still, like they added a third guard to Fox and Halliburton and it seems to be a phenomenal, uh, you know, move so far. So they're very analytically driven. I mean, Monte McNair is pretty highly regarded around the league, but I think the ultimate uh, conclusion from my reporting from Built to Lose is that a lot of the success of team building ultimately comes down to an owner. And unfortunately, Vivek Ranadiva, until he proves that he can kind of steer a steady ship, right? Like it seems to be he kind of enjoys when his franchise is in a bit of disarray and there's some dissent and people are coming to talk to him about each other behind their backs to him. Like he kind of seems to have enjoyed that, right? So if he can kind of let go of the ropes and allow this, you know, by all accounts, really good front office that they've assembled to work and, and, and build this thing. You know, maybe they do have the pieces here, um, but I think it's too early to call. To another franchise that didn't exactly handle its basketball operations well at all, but turned things around really quickly. And they had some benefits that you outlined. And there's some really good quotes related to that. I'm talking about the Lakers hmm. who, it's indisputable that they made some pretty boneheaded moves with regard to team building. I know a lot of it also was emotional um, related to Kobe Bryant and his legacy, but just if you can touch upon how a franchise in a large market like LA and one that has an indelible brand like that of the Lakers can recover so quickly, whereas it's a lot tougher for one, like say Orlando or Sacramento. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I really wanted to include the Lakers being that they're the independent variable in all this, where they were the worst team in the league during the five-year stretch in which we covered in the book. Um, and it didn't matter. LeBron still signed there in free agency in 2018. Anthony Davis came soon after. They won a title. So I think that's exactly why tanking does exist in these smaller markets. You got to, if you're Utah with Donovan Mitchell, if you're Orlando, you know, when they had Dwight Howard, like Milwaukee with Giannis, Portland with Dame. You got to get these guys through the draft and do everything you can to build a contender around them or else you got no shot with LA or Chicago doing a whole clean sweep and free agency with, you know, top tier guys um, and getting right back into the postseason picture this year or Brooklyn landing KD and Kyrie and then, and the Knicks starting to you know develop some excitement again. Like, you can't compete with that. Miami's always going to be someone, you know, a team that that draws people like Kyle Larry. So if you are that smaller market, it really, to compete with the LA's, tanking seems to be your, your best alternative. And I have to get you out of here, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for doing this. So I'm going to send you off on a, a two-part question. It's about your homie, Sam Hinkie. I think you did a really good job of providing a balanced depiction of him. So there's his brilliance in there a lot, his kindness, but also the ways in which he could really get under the skin of, of a lot of different people, players, agents, opposing executives, the NBA as a whole. 
the list goes on. But how do you think the reality of his tenure with Philadelphia matches up with the general consensus on it? And then also, what's the likelihood of a Sam Hinkie return to the NBA to any NBA front office someday? He's only 44 or he'll be 44 in a couple of months. So he's young. Yeah. Um, you know, Sam is a very complicated guy in terms of his, his NBA world and legacy. Um, I do think on the whole, you called his homies. Um, I'd say, I'd say, I'd say we're, I'd say we're acquaintances. Yeah. Um, he's not inviting me over to dinner with his family. Um, but <laughs> I, I can get him on the phone. I think still, you need to um, create a little distance anyway. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think his time in the NBA though has come to an end. I think, we talked about how, how valuable ownership and important ownership ultimately is at the end of the day. I think Sam Hinkie would only come back into an NBA world where an NBA world that, that doesn't exist, where an owner can't come and pull the rug out from under you like that happened in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So he's teaching classes out in Stanford and he's got a venture philanthropy or venture capital fund called like one capital or something like that. I forget. And he's raised over $150 million, I think in series a funding, like he's doing his thing. If you follow him on Twitter and you see, he retweets some like random techie company. That's usually a company he's, you know, backing. So he's doing stuff like that. And I think he's happy. I think he like lived the dream in terms of running an NBA team and being the right hand to a pretty successful one in Houston, all those years under Daniel Morey. And I think kind of the drama and the BS that Daryl is dealing with in, in Philly right now is exactly why Ben's ha- or why well, why Sam is happy um, to be on the sidelines and, and do his own thing outside of basketball. Do you think the general consensus on his tenure is fair? Where he's lionized by some, other people think it it was kind of a, a disaster. But I think more the the former. But is it generally an accurate uh, view of his tenure? I think there's no way to view it objectively as a disaster being where the team has now been for the last five plus years um, in terms of being a legitimate Eastern conference contender. But I do think he did a lot of things um, that he would take back and that bothered people in the NBA and being that the NBA is a business and a relationship business with that more so than it is a sport. That's an important aspect of the job that I think ultimately he failed at. And I think that's why that's ultimately why he is where he's at right now and not still in basketball. I guess what I meant by some seeing as, as a disaster would be for others, like get hurting the NBA or the brand. Not because I mean, from a Sixers perspective, you'd have to just be glued in time to when they were one of the worst teams. Because I mean, we've seen what happens with what happened with this team that, that he built. Yeah, well, the worst team in the NBA was creating some of the biggest storylines and the most interest in its product. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't see how it could have been viewed as a bad thing. Yeah, that's a great point. I'll let you get out of here. Thanks again, Jake, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, man. Thanks again to our buddy Jake Fisher for appearing on the show and for providing a promotional copy of the book. We can't wait to read number two when it's ultimately out into the world. Of course, thank you to our loyal listeners and to those tuning in for the first time. Your host for this episode was me, Aaron Fisher. You can follow our show on Twitter at OnTheNBAB and me personally at ByAaronFish. This episode was produced and edited by your truly.
You can listen to more episodes and subscribe to the show by searching on the NBA beat wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings and reviews are always appreciated as they really do help more people find the show. OTNB is a proud member of the Basketball Podcast Network. See you next time.